Right now on Tech Radio, Musk kills Twitter. Hi, I'm Artemis. I am a computer-generated AI voice, and you're listening to Tech Radio. Every week online and on air with RTE Radio, we bring you the latest in tech. You're very welcome to episode 968. On the show this week, we're chatting about your online identity with Jeff White, a fellow podcaster with his own cybercrimes investigation series. We're also talking about a key resignation at Google this week and a warning about a new feature at LinkedIn, which could mess up your application for a job. This is Tech Radio with Dusty Rhodes and Niall Kitson. Our Tech Central Editor-in-Chief uh, joins us as always, Niall Kitson. Uh, I should point out that we are recording the show a little earlier this week for various different reasons. Um, mm-hmm. But there's going to be lots of stories about tech earnings this week because Apple and all that are coming out or, or have been out by the time you listen to this podcast. That's mm-hmm. why they're not on the podcast, but we definitely have all the details for you on the website at techcentral.ie. Stuff that has caught our attention, though, this week is Musk. He's killing Twitter. He is literally oh, well, killing you know, Twitter. We've we've been saying this for over a year now. That you know, since March twenty twenty two. Yeah, yeah. That, oh, this is it. Twitter is gone. Everybody is moving to Mastodon. That's you know, I I moved over to Mastodon very quickly, and you know, I didn't post on Twitter. I'm not posting on Mastodon. It hasn't changed my behavior. Um, Although I do still check in on Twitter just to see what has died or what people are arguing about mm. or, you know, how <laughs> toxic the discourse has become, which is to say pretty darn toxic. But that's, um, that, and that's, now, more popular, that's more popularity that you're talking about, whereas Musk is, is like his actions are killing Twitter. Well, that- yeah, because, you know, his his thing is that he calls himself a free speech absolutist, which means mm. that he can say anything he likes and, and he will never feel the consequences of it. Uh, regular people like you and me, we say things and things happen to us. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is the difference. There's no such thing in real life, if you will, as being a free speech absolutist. You might be able to say whatever you like, but, you know, you're going to have to deal with the consequences of it if you do. Um, So the latest thing that he did was he labelled NPR, National Public Radio in the States, Mm. as being state-sponsored media, basically putting it in the same category as, you know, um, maybe Sputnik and sort of, you know, Russia Today and, you know, uh, outlets that have, shall we say, a certain outlook. I wouldn't even say that. You know, I would say that it's in the same category as RTE. NPR is very like RT. It's speech radio. They do a lot of public service stuff and stuff like that. Um, it's like RT is also independent and it's not owned by the government and it's not a, a vocal piece for the, for the government. The independence of RT is key to its constitution. Uh, it's the same with NPR. But Twitter just turned around and, you know, they blindly label everybody and went to uh, NPR's mm-hmm. a government sponsored organization. That'd be like them labeling RTE as a government sponsored organization, which it's not. Sure which I'm sure they would if they actually knew to pay attention to these things. Um, Yeah, and the thing is with NPR, like they raise the vast majority of their money through public pledges. Um, They get a tiny amount of money from the government, Mm. probably just enough to handle, you know, the cost of the transmitters. Certainly not enough to look after wages or content or anything like that. Um, And, you know, their content is actually really good. So to see it labelled as uh, state-sponsored media just seems really petty Mm. to me. What do you think? 
Uh, I think that they are trying to label stuff and the system is just not working. I think if they manually sat down and went government-sponsored media, nobody uh, with a brain would have said that. But the algorithm, which is just learning, just went, okay, bump, off it goes. And it's been doing this left, right and centre. And this is why I say Musk is killing Twitter, because he's rolling stuff out every day and it's all new and it's untested and it's untried. And he's trying to do this with fewer staff. That mistakes are being made left, right and centre. And what I find is the way he's running the business is that every day, there's something new and then there's people up in arms about it and then there's a rollback and then there's some kind of a compromise. It's like if I turn on, you know, come my Virgin Media box, okay, and they say, okay, Grant, yay, you've got BBC, ITV, blah, blah, blah. Actually, do you know what? We're not having BBC because that's a state-sponsored organisation, but we'll still give you ITV and RT. And then you go back the next day and they go, actually, do you know what? We're going to put BBC One back on, but not BBC Two, uh, and we're going to take out... It's changing. It's all that... And people just... Don't like change is is my thing. And it's for that very reason that he is killing Twitter, because people like yourself, Niall, are just kind of, Ugh, I give up. Well, they don't like the drama and they like stability. Yes. Uh, I mean, you know, Musk has since come out and said, OK, you know, NPR, we're, we're going to take away uh, we're, we're going to say you're not state sponsored media. Mm. But, you know, you might be labeled as something else or something else on another platform, whatever that means, you know, sort of a veiled threat. Uh, Because as we know, um, Elon Musk is is so good at taking criticism. (laughs) So good at it. He loves feedback. Well, just Um, to to wrap up this uh, NPR side of things, what he's done this week is uh, NPR have reacted by saying, well, we're not going to post Twitter anymore. <laughs> All right, quite rightly. Fair enough. And, uh, and then so he almost sent, sent an email to a reporter, not to the head of NPR, but just a, a journalist or something, whatever, one of the workers in NPR and said, uh, listen, are you going to use your uh, NPR uh, handle on Twitter? Because if you're not, we're going to reassign it. <laughs> it's like, that's just classic bullying, you know? It's, it's yeah. Yeah. Anyways, uh, other big story this week is Jeffrey Hinton has said he's out where does he work? Where did he work? And what's he all about? Yeah, Jeffrey Hinton, one of the pioneers of AI, actually got a got a neural network working in 2012, back in the day, I suppose. Uh, and he's been working with Google on all things AI. And he's decided, I'm leaving the company. That's it. And he's, it's not that he's frustrated with Google and Google's AI attempt. Mm. Uh, if anything, he came out and he said, look, Google have been one of the better companies at this. They've actually been a pretty good steward, and he used that word steward, uh, of the technology. Um, that's not what I have a problem with. He has a problem with um, ChatGPT and what other companies are doing with AI. And he wants to be able to step back and just be an independent voice to criticize the direction of AI technology, which makes perfect sense. Um, I mean, you know, if you're working for Google and criticizing Bing, you're going to do that. You know, you've no mm. credibility whatsoever. If you're going to step back and just be, you know, a, a person, uh, a, you know, albeit one with um, uh, incredible uh, presence in the history of AI, mm. to be able to say, look, this is a really negative uh, direction it's going in. Uh, it is, you know, leading to toxic discourse. It is leading to misinformation being put out in the world. 
And that is incredibly problematic because as we know, um, the likes of ChatGPT suffers from what they call hallucinations, hmm. where it basically spews out information that is incorrect, does so in a very confident fashion. So people will just take it as read. So, you know, uh, it's not, you know, ChatGPT is not a flawless technology. Um, it's using data that was never designed to be collected in this fashion mm. uh, and spewing out things that very often could be, you know, based on conjecture, rumor, a lack of actual scientific evidence. And if you were to go, okay, right, you're a state-sponsored actor, you want to target 100,000 people on Facebook that like Donald Trump, you could say to ChatGPT, write me a letter, we'll get them, that will get the following people to vote. Mm. And ChatGPT will write you a letter um, with whatever bias you want, and it'll do it very quickly. And then you just send it to them. So that's the kind of thing that um, Hinton is very, very worried about. Uh, and likely so. And, you know, his the catalyst for this was Bing uh, having ChatGPT Chat GPT built in as standard. Because yeah. uh, I don't know if you can do it yet, but I, I, I just open up Bing and there's a chat function and it's ChatGPT. Yeah. And I asked it, you know, something very straightforward um, to do with, you know, my, my work. And it gave me a straight answer. And I was like, oh, do you know what? I, I actually do that already. That's fine. Um, it's the whole thing of, you know, Get ChatGPT to to tell you something, and that's Google's entire search model gone. Uh, however, you have not had to make any critical decisions or make um, a decision as to whether source is trustworthy or not. You know, it's a problem. Yes, and I think that's a problem with Bing. I think it's a problem with ChatGPT. At least Bing, Bing will turn around and it'll say, "Well, I got this uh, answer from these websites." Mm. Um. I don't know. Do you know where where I think uh, where we are with life and all kinds of things with AI is that we're just sussing it out. And it kind of reminds me a little bit of the early days of Facebook and social media and what works and what doesn't work. And then you had all kinds of bullying and, and information problems on what's right and what isn't and who what moderates and who doesn't moderate. Even chat boards. Oh, my goodness. Going back even further. Uh, do you mm. remember when chat boards came out kind of in the, I suppose, with the 90s, wasn't it? Gosh, you're uh, you're you're ahead of me on that one now. Ah, yeah, well, well ahead because I'm the old man in the room. Thank you very much, Niall, for pointing <laughs> that out. Um, but it, I think we're just sussing it out. I, I think AI is amazing, and it will go on to do some some absolutely incredible things. And I think it will be a massive. I've said it before on this podcast where I think AI it today is like Google when it came out earlier uh, about twenty years ago. It's it's just got a uh, it's exploring a fraction of the the possibilities exactly. But it will in twenty years time just be part of our day to day life, and you'll have kids going. Oh, but it's always been like that. We will not know how to how to live without it. Interesting though that uh, Jeffrey is making a stand. Uh, also speaking of AI in the news this week, uh, LinkedIn have announced uh, that they are going to use AI uh, to help you write messages to hiring managers. Okay, so kind of one of the main reasons that everybody is on LinkedIn is because because uh, they're all looking for a new job or they're all, it's, 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 it's like Tinder for working people. Uh, they're all just, you know, what are the possibilities out there? So LinkedIn are kind of doing this thing where, okay, Grant, if you want to apply to a lot of people for a lot of jobs, we'll use AI. What we'll do is we'll pull information from hiring managers profiles and from the company profile and write a highly personalized 
application message, okay? Which would go mm. something along the lines of, uh, Dear Niall Kitson, uh, I am applying to be a journalist with Tech Central because I believe that the blah blah article that you wrote last week was a pinnacle of journalism and that is the standards that mm-hmm. I aspire to. Something like that, all right? But... Mm. What it neglects to find. I use LinkedIn every day. I hate it. All right. Uh, And one of the reasons is that the information is woefully out of date. So many people on LinkedIn don't keep their information up to date. And they've got, they, they, the company, when they joined LinkedIn, the company that they said they were with when they joined LinkedIn was two jobs ago. But they haven't updated it, all right? Mm -hmm. So then it would be like me kind of sending you a letter saying, uh, Dear Niall Kitson, uh, I really want a job at Irish Independent (laughs) because blah, 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 you know, kind of, and maybe that blog post, uh, which was all about uh, cooking blueberry uh, cakes, (laughs) whatever. Mm -hmm. You just can't check the information. And I think it's just going to be the only way to write a really good, highly personalised message to somebody is to sit down and write a message yourself to somebody. Do you, do you know what? Do you, do you know the way around this is? You ask ChatGPT, how do I write a good cover letter? And it will give you a template and just work with that. Because cover letters, you know, nobody gets invited to an interview on the basis of a cover letter. Cover letter is just basically high. And oh, people really? get very stressed about how to how to write them. Now, okay, you're an employer. Tell me about your experience with cover letters. I've just been through a recruitment process. Uh, some of the cover letters uh, really annoyed me because they were cover books. <laughs> Mm-hmm. They yeah. just went on for like two pages worth of I feel this and I want that and da 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 and all that kind of stuff. Um, so no, the cover letter should be. I think I can add to you because one liner. All right. My CV is mm. attached. All right. And then inside your mm. CV should be just enough to me kind of go, oh, they sound really interesting. I want to talk to them. Mm. That's about it. Yeah. All right. Uh, the other thing that people don't do is they don't look or maybe they do look and they see the description of the job and then apply for it anyway. So like, you mm-hmm. know, kind of one of the things we have is two years uh, minimum experience and the amount of applications we had just finished college. <laughs> Yeah. Really want to get into this area, blah blah. As it's been, 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 mm. you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you've you've got to find a way of, of of sorting through them. But when I saw that LinkedIn were going to put AI writing mass messages to hiring managers, which I think is really funny because actually a lot of the cover letters that we got was dear hiring manager. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. what? This must be a new thing. I would have just said hi. <laughs> You know, yeah, I I do think it's a new thing. All right, because Mm. very often um, the people in those positions, you don't know their name. No, you don't. So, So, you know, just sir or madam is just dated. So your hiring manager is, is it. Oh, well, maybe, maybe not. Last piece of news for mm. you this week. Uh, Apple and Google are kind of teaming up. I like this, actually, uh, to tackle Bluetooth tracker stalking. Hmm. And I believe that um, uh, Samsung are going to get involved as well, because what's happening is these Google tracker or these uh, Bluetooth trackers were a great idea. Stick one in your bag mm-hmm. or stick one on the back of your phone or whatever, so that if you happen to lose it, well, then you can look up and see on a map where it is. Mm. But then people started attaching them to ex-girlfriends or people they wanted to follow really? or hiding them in the car of these people and then finding out where they lived and all that kind of stuff. Oh, um, so, uh, but it's good. Now, I don't know what the solution is. One of the things they had been talking about was um, a kind of an operating system level 
tracker detection thing, all right, um, mm. where your phone or something like that would pick up a Bluetooth signal and know that it was a tracker. Mm. And it would let you know that there was one nearby that's not registered to your phone, as mm. in somebody else's Bluetooth tracker. But then again, like if we all have Bluetooth tracker in our pockets and our phones, how is that going to work? I don't know. Um, I have no idea how it works. I don't even want to think about it. The only thing that I'm happy with this news story is that Apple and Google and Samsung and a couple of other really big names are all sitting down together to talk about mm. it and to try to solve the problem, which I think is great. Yeah, yeah, that's that's fair enough. It's good that these conversations are being had and that, you know, actual products uh, might be coming out of it because this is a huge problem. It's a very serious yeah. problem uh, and it's it's important that it be dealt with. Grand, as I say, it's, a uh, you know, kind of, Things are changing fast and we're just learning on how to adapt as we go along. Listen, uh, Niall Kitson, thank you for keeping us up to date with all of the news. As I say, we've been recording a little earlier this week, so a lot of stuff uh, that you might have expected us to chat about on the podcast is not here. Uh, But we have all of those stories for you online, which carries on relentless at techcentral.ie. This is Tech Radio from techcentral.ie. Get every episode of Tech Radio by clicking follow on your podcast player right now. Whether it's a username on your email or a handle on a discussion forum, we all use different names to go by. But what does this mean for our digital and indeed our real identity? Jeff White is an investigative journalist who has covered everything from billion dollar cyber heists to global money laundering rings and crypto gangsters. When he was in Dublin recently, he sat down and chatted with Niall Kitson about online identity. Jeff, yourself and myself are are old enough to remember when you probably used your real name to sign up for something. Uh, Of course, that doesn't happen anymore. Uh, We're all very careful or maybe not careful, but excited to be online and given the opportunity to be things that we're not, to cultivate identities that we're not. Uh, And I suppose this now kind of starts with the very basic thing of choosing your own username on a certain kind of forum, whether it's a gaming forum or whether it's a, a social network. How do you think this new style of identity or curation of identity has helped change us? Well, it's interesting. Uh, we've always expressed ourselves differently in different formats. You know, from time immemorial, people at work would behave very differently and project a different personality to how they would at home with their family, with their friends, etc. So in a way, human beings, I think, are used to having like different personalities, a different size of their personalities. What's been interesting, as you said, is online, there's the ability to effectively brand those different parts of your personality. And, and so it gets interesting from a sort of psychological perspective to section them off and silo them off. So behavior that you would normally consider completely unacceptable, uh, you can be tempted to perpetrate online under a different identity because that different identity seems to give you a completely different persona online. And that's where a lot of the hacking comes in. There's this idea that it's not me doing it, it's my persona, it's, you know, bad Jeff 67 doing it rather than sort of Jeff White uh, doing it. It's very important, I think, for people who are going to try and do bad things online to have some way of justifying it to themselves psychologically. And the adoption of a persona, the adoption of a mask, in the case of Anonymous, of course, sometimes literally a mask, helps people do that. It, it psychologically disassociates them from the things that they're doing. There's a lot of research done into this of, of psychological disassociation online and how that allows people to feel like they can perpetrate these these evil things online. I have to say the, the sort of past masters of this, if you like, is people who are part of the anonymous movement and still are. That that whole world is really fascinating because these people exist in, in Discord chat rooms, they exist in online chat. You can sign up to those Discord chats under any name you like 
So it's interesting. How do you know who you're dealing with? How do you know who's trustworthy in inverted commas? How do you know who's good and who's bad at doing what they're doing? Who's skillful and not skillful? What's been really interesting is that if you look back at the, the sort of history of Anonymous and those kind of online hacker groups, particularly the sort of activist groups like Anonymous, people are very, very skilled at detecting language that people use. So I can sign on to one of those Discord rooms and pretend to be, you know, the lead person in Anonymous chat. But as soon as I start communicating and talking, I give the game away that I'm not, you know, Captain Hacker number 45 because he, he speaks completely differently or she speaks completely differently. So again, the people who are in this milieu all the time who are constantly seeing people swap identities and play with identity, they get really good at not just going by the hacker handle or the, the, the name used, but detecting beyond that the style of communication and interrogating the person. They're, they're really good at picking up on that. And I think those are skills that increasingly we're all going to have to have because increasingly you don't know who you're operating with online. Our accounts get hacked and taken over. And it's those psychological tells. And this comes out, you know, where the rubber hits the road, it comes down on things like phishing emails. You get an email that seems to come from a relative or a friend of yours stranded overseas who desperately needs money. And there's just something in that email where you go, hang on, my mate Tom wouldn't use that. If he was stranded overseas and needed my money, he wouldn't express it like that. So I think we're all starting to get into this field of not just trusting the name or the email address or the account name or whatever, but looking beyond that and thinking, right, how do we work out what the communication is here? Does it, does it, does it sound kosher? And uh, that point on language is really interesting, whether it's language that's just been mangled for, you know, cyber criminal purposes, or maybe it's something like Lee Speak in a, in a gamer forum where people are sort of, they're, they're proving their chops by, you know, dropping as much slang in there as possible. Uh, and of course, hackers and hacktivist groups have, they've always been really good at that all the way back, you know, to phone freaking where coming up with your own sort of idioms really is sort of that, that badge of honor. Do you think a lot of people pay attention to the language and, you know, are attracted to that as much as, or sometimes more than the skills people are actually meant to be practicing? To a certain extent, yes. Um, again, going back to the kind of anonymous chat rooms and, and anonymous obviously has a long and, and, and very intricate history. There are still, even now, and particularly after the outbreak of war in Ukraine, chat rooms inhabited by anonymous and other hacktivist groups. I'm using anonymous there as quite a general term. There's some people who don't say they're anonymous, but they're in one of the other sort of, you know, hacktivist type groups. They're, they're incredibly febrile conversations, constantly fast flowing. Um, in Discord, for example, you may need to engage slow mode where it slows down the chat just so you can keep up with it. There are hundreds of messages arriving on the screen constantly. What I find really fascinating about that is how does a group like that get anything done? Because clearly these groups do get things done. They stage hacks. There's been various hacks attributed to Anonymous, particularly around the war in Ukraine. So clearly, at some stage, they're not just talking, they're doing. Well, how do they pick what to do and who to follow and where to go? There's this swarming, amorphous group of people suggesting all sorts of targets and all sorts of things. And some people are just, you know, gabbing off and, and, and not suggesting anything sensible at all. But clearly somebody within there is they're coalescing around particular people, particular targets. How do you punch through the noise? And that's what's really interesting. People who are good in those chat rooms they manage to talk enough sense, but be punchy enough that people go, ah, oh, there's somebody who knows what they're talking about. There's somebody who's got a plan. I'm going to follow that identity and that person. Um, and, and that's what I find really interesting. And, and as you watch these chats going on, you watch the messages streaming up the screen, you start to pick up on it. You start to go, oh, that person's chimed in again. Oh, that's okay. Now they're suggesting this. A lot of it is just chatter of, you know, let's bash Russia, let's kill Russia, etc. Then somebody pops up who has a sensible suggestion and seems to have the nous to know how to make that work, you can see it and you think, well, I'm going to pay attention to what they say next. 
And so you start to gravitate around these things. And that's not to do with the hacker identity they've got or anything they've put in with their bona fides. That's simply because what they put in the chat seems sensible and cogent and thought out. And that actually stands out quite a lot, given the amount of noise uh, around the signal. That point on target selection is really interesting because, as we know, Anonymous started out as sort of a campaign against the Church of Scientology. Uh, and then there was a second, n- not nearly as successful campaign when they decided they'd take on the Zetas in, in Mexico, which was rather quickly stamped out when people realised who and what the Zetas actually were. So where do we find the likes of Anonymous going these days? Because, you know, we have seen an on-ops sort of bolster, bolstering and signal boosting for Ukraine, for example. But by the nature of Anonymous, one imagines there is a, you know, somebody actually wearing the same mask and hoodie, uh, only promoting Russian propaganda. Yeah, there is. Absolutely. I find that sort of trajectory of Anonymous quite interesting. It, it sort of went off the boil, certainly in the newsrooms I was working. I was at Channel 4 News at the time, post the, the, the things you've talked about, the Church of Scientology and so on. And then there was sort of Wicked, uh, WikiLeaks sort of aspect to it. Um, it, it. As far as I'm aware, after that, the Middle East became a huge zone for Anonymous, um, particularly obviously uh, the conflict in Syria, that started to bubble up around there. Even prior to that, though, the Middle East seemed to be the zone where it was really kicking off. And there was this because zone, of, zone of conflict uh, and has been for, for quite a long time. And then obviously the Ukraine war happens and suddenly Anonymous has this sort of rebirth, if you like, in Europe. Um, but again, it, it's interesting. You, you write in that there are, uh, you know, Anonymous, and I'm using Anonymous as a kind of umbrella term, hacktivist might be a better phrase, supporters of Ukraine. But there are also uh, those on the Russian side trying to do the same thing. The fascinating thing in the Ukraine conflict has been the Ukrainian government getting involved in inverted commas in terms of the sort of cyber army of Ukraine and the idea that you can join a telegram chat where the Ukrainian government is apparently giving you targets to go and help attack with denial of service attacks. I'll be honest, uh, that for me crosses a line. I don't think governments should be encouraging people to do that, to join in with that. And that's not just me being pious, that's because there is a real risk that the Russian government would see that as being uh, aggression. aggression. It would perhaps be seen as an act of war. And if people in the UK, for example, are joining in mass attacks guided by the Ukrainian government on Russian targets, it is not unfeasible that Russia may turn around and say, right, the UK is now, at least in the cyber terms, one of the participants in this war in Ukraine. They're a legitimate target. In, In the same way we don't, we're resisting putting British boots on the ground in Ukraine because of the consequences of that. We should also treat cyber in the same way. We don't necessarily want UK cyber boots on the ground in the Ukraine war because that does open up potentially a whole belligerent uh, line of of attack for Russia. So I think you've got to be incredibly careful with that. One of the sort of side effects of that is if you have somebody that, you know, was a curious hacktivist or a member of Anonymous or something like that, all of a sudden become a, a state agent effectively if you've been assigned a target in Russia, say a power grid or something like that. Um, so in a sense, we're coming to this explosion of identity where looking at that idea where, you know, you're at work, you're at home, you're, you know, as a, a cyber terrorist, where now we have this sort of di- divergence of, you know, the one set of skills, one person, but they could be a spy, they mm. could be a hacktivist, they could be a, a cyber criminal. Um, how are we seeing people's identities explode in these directions? Is it a case of somebody starts off an anonymous and goes, you know, this is fantastic and then discovers, do you know what, there's a legitimate career path to joining Conti here or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Um, there is a bit of that. Um, 
what I have seen in the past and what I've read in, in, in sort of coverage of court cases and so on is a situation whereby um, somebody is hanging around one of the hacking forums um, and trying to gain kudos in that community and basically attacking bigger and bigger targets. And then somebody comes along and says, oh, I saw what you did attacking that particular target. Could you do it on this other target? And by the way, there's some money in it for you and some Bitcoin in it for you, et cetera. Um, that is the sort of shallow slope into cybercrime. So somebody can start off basically trying to exhibit their skills uh, in a slightly hacktivist type way to show off how good they are at security and so on, and can end up being pulled into sort of cybercrime uh, operations. I don't think, I'll be honest, that those people are necessarily then being recruited into the sort of heart of, of, of criminal gangs, of cybercrime gangs. I believe those cybercrime gangs are quite careful about who they recruit at the very heart of it. They only work with people they've worked with for a long time and they trust, particularly some of the Russian cybercrime networks, they've all grown up together for the past 10, 15 years. They've been either working together or working against each other. They all, you know, they know the, they know the crowd of people. Um, so that core level, I'd be surprised if a sort of bedroom hacker, if you like, will get really, really deep into cybercrime gangs. It's not that it doesn't happen. I think it'd be quite rare. What you do see is the cybercrime gangs um, desperately trying to recruit people around the outside, fringe people, coder people, to help them out with different jobs. So I talked about this in my talk earlier on. The Conti gang, for example, thanks to the, the Conti ransomware gang, who are one of the world's most prevalent, prolific ransomware gangs, um, they started recruiting people on Russian job sites because they needed people that they could work with. They needed coders and they needed hundreds of coders. They were desperate to recruit people. What that meant is people ended up being recruited by the Conti gang and at least initially not even knowing that it was a ransomware gang. The initial interview didn't give that away. They just said, oh, you'll be working on a, a big Bitcoin project, for example, we need coders. It was only later on they got presented with the fact they were joining a ransomware gang. Now, at that stage, it's interesting, some people would drop out at that stage and just say, well, I'm not interested in ransomware, I'll break the law. Some people might stay with it for a while, but understand it's dodgy and they don't they don't particularly want to do it. They want to have a legitimate job. So you've got this interesting interplay between how much you tell people when, if you're recruiting to a ransomware gang, and when you tell people how long they will stay with you. And one of the interesting things about this, one of the good pieces of news about this, I suppose, is that what this shows us is that ransomware gangs are desperately trying to recruit people and struggling. In the same way, any tech startups really struggling to get good talent. Ransomware gangs are the same. The more good, highly paid legal jobs we can offer young coders, the less likely they are to sign up to a ransomware gang. So in a way, it's, it's a slightly unusual defense against ransomware. It doesn't get talked about, but, you know, giving those people opportunities where they can do something legal, I strongly suspect they would rather go to those than ransomware gangs. I think that's one of the great lessons of the internet, that if there's a, a legal and slightly more clever way of doing something, you will attract developers and talent uh, much better than sort of the old ways all the way down to sort of people volunteering for Napster uh, and now working for Spotify <laughs> because it's a, it's, a, it's a much better model and it's not going to get you arrested. Similarly, we're seeing the notion of identity being adapted and morphed within cybercrime organizations where they are starting to mimic corporate entities more and more. Uh, is this something that is, you know, a, a relic maybe of government involvement? Do you think it's lessons learned at ground level uh, or is it something else entirely? It's interesting. I mean, again, going back to the Conti leaks, because the Conti leaks are a fantastic glimpse into how a modern ransomware gang works from the inside on a co corporate level. What you see is this very clear demarcation between leaders, between technical managers, between HR and recruitment. There is payroll, 
Um, I'm not sure this case in Conti, but I know in other cybercrime gangs, there's been a sort of PR type marketing type person who's responsible for drafting the threatening messages sent to companies or liaising with journalists, uh, et cetera. Um, I, I just think it's inevitable as, a, as an organization grows up and develops and matures that you get that kind of stratification. Um, somebody in the organization will be the leader. And if there isn't one, somebody will emerge and take over. Somebody in the organization has no interest in the technical side at all, but they're useful and they're handy and they might end up possibly doing the HR recruitment. They might end up doing the the the, the social media and the PR type job. So you, you start to see this, that because these are amorphous organizations that start to attract lots of people, in the end, people sort of slot into their particular zone of specialism. So I don't think it's the case that ransomware gang started out and saying, right, we need a person working in HR, we need HR on payroll, we need a person working, you know, on our PR side. I think they just get people and realize, well, this is a useful person to have this particular skill. Um, uh, and, and perhaps they are copying tech companies and realizing, well, these are the roles in normal tech companies. We need to have them as well. Um, but, but I suspect it's a bit more amorphous than that. Uh, and again, coming to that, that word again, amorphous, we're entering the age of the metaverse now, I suppose, uh, after what, 30 years of being told that it was just around the corner. Uh, we do seem to actually have the building blocks to make it happen this time. Um, you know, we have deep fakes, fine, but I mean, we've also got photorealistic avatars now as well. So what do you think people will take up as the building blocks of their, I suppose, future digital identities? Yeah. It's interesting. I think um, I am as sceptical and gnarly as it sounds that you are, you know, in terms of the developments of this over the years. Um, there has been the, sort of the classic AI winter and people forget that the AI winter, you know, followed an AI summer. There, was, there were huge developments in AI and massive hopes and dreams for it they were dashed on the rocks of technical complexity. You're right, we now have the amount of data, that digital data, digitized data that we, we potentially need for AI to take off and potentially the processing power. And I say the word potentially there in, in capital letters in that we thought we had that the last time AI came along. We were stunned at the computing power we had in the sort of 60s. Um, and still we struggled to make those leaps towards AI. We now are having another burst in AI. It may be we get dashed on the rocks of the next bit of complexity. But it does feel like we're sort of moving into this this zone. And if there are some really interesting aspects around identity. So um, ChatGPT, for example, is able to, to, to come out with natural sounding language. Uh, I have some concerns about ChatGPT, but nonetheless, that is there. As you say, you can create a, a convincing looking photographic uh, avatar at the moment. Increasingly, you'll be able to do a video version of that. Um, what I wonder about in the future is whether I don't think this is a resistible force. I think we're just in this situation where fakery of all types, both good and bad, uh, is just in our future. It, the idea that it's going to be our hands on the keyboard and our face on the camera going forward, I think we've sort of lost that battle. In which case, okay, let's absorb that and, and, and move on and work out where that goes. I suspect in the future, we will each of us have an artificial intelligence avatar, possibly several, running our identity in various ways in different places. So, for example, my friend invites me out for a beer. What do I do? Well, I check my calendar. I generally would go for a beer on a Thursday or Friday, you know, end of the week, a bit better. So I check my calendar. There are certain days that are sealed off and certain days that are open, certain evenings that are open. Um, if I've got a big weekend, I'm going somewhere, I wouldn't probably go out on the Friday because I want to get some sleep. And then I reply to my friend and say, well, I can do these dates. Think of all of those steps. There is absolutely no reason why an artificial intelligence bot couldn't do those steps for me and potentially reply uh, uh, to my friend. And we'll be looking through the previous emails I'd sent to him saying, 
you know, get, get the language right. You know, is it chummy? Is it sweary? Is it polite? And so on. I suspect there may still be a point where it presents me with the option and says, do you want, and I hit the send button, do you want to send this? That might still happen. There might be other bits of communication, the way we have auto replies at the moment with holidays, where I'm happy to let the bot just handle it because I don't want that, you know, there's, there's, there's low risk to the bot getting it wrong. But I just think we're going to have multiple artificial intelligence identities out there. What's really interesting about that from a security point of view is at the moment, synthetic identity uh, use, so basically taking, either taking over a real person's identity or creating a fake one and, for example, setting up a bank account with it. That's something the industry takes very, very seriously and, and is struggling with. But it's in industry, it's in anti-money laundering, it's in security and so on. Among the wider population, that's not really a big sort of problem because most of the wider population don't do it. As we move into a world where we are all running synthetic identities and setting up effectively fakes of us, uh, copies of us, avatars of us, this debate is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger in society. And so the debate the security industry and the anti-money laundering industry and know your customer industry is having at the moment about how do we interpret who's real and who's not, that debate's going to enter the public sphere and is then going to hopefully get dealt with, maybe in a mature way, at least it's going to get s s sort of dealt with. In the same way that facial recognition has started to bubble up, you know, as, as, as a more public debate, I suspect the idea of, of identity and artificial identity will bubble up uh, in debate and will be dealt with a bit more um, and so that's how I sort of see things going. And I think what constitutes identity will certainly change as well. I mean, uh, when it becomes convenient to do so, mm. uh, we will have our share portfolios made public on blockchain. We will have, you know, the face that we want slightly tweaked as part of a, an avatar. Uh, we will have maybe the, the, you know, the smart devices in our home presented as package um, to go, you know, I am X productive. By the way, here's what I have, like some sort of tracking cookie or something like that. What elements do you see becoming part of a, a digital self, becoming part of our identities without necessarily trying? Um, God, it's a really good question. Um, um, are, you, are you talking about our uh, sort of interfaces with, let's say, smart gadgets, with our online profiles? Yeah, exactly. Sort of the, in the way that we sort of consider ourselves to still to be sort of the concept of the ghost in the machine. Uh, or as now as we've been discussing multiple ghosts uh, coming from one body to do with a machine, um, how else will we start to think of ourselves? Will we have our physical self, our meta self? Will that meta self be expressed through different media or different, um, you know, how can I say, commodities? Uh, uh, yeah, it's an interesting question. I see where you're going with this. So yeah, it, it, I am, even though the metaverse, there are developments in that aspect, in that um, space, I am sceptical and I will say the idea that we are going to kick free of our earthly bounds and just exist behind a VR headset, as, it, as we've done in the Facebook Mark Zuckerberg videos, I just think it's nonsense. We, we are, we are frighteningly hidebound to this rock that we rotate on. And if you look at the really interesting developments um, uh, around augmented space, if you like, and as a terrible phrase, but you're not looking at people using VR all the time. And again, I've lived through at least two VR booms. I mean, at one stage, we were supposed to be all living in second life. It didn't happen. I think the idea that we're going to exist in the metaverse, I, 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 I may end up being the guy who, you know, got this hell horribly wrong, but I just don't see, I know people who design in VR and they spend, they can spend maybe an hour, two hours max in VR. They just, you, the idea that we're going to spend any more time than that, I think is nonsense. It will become a tool that we use. What's interesting about the metaverse isn't so much the sort of virtualized universes. It's, it's the, um, 
blockchainified aspect to it, by which I mean stuff that you have in the metaverse doesn't just exist in that computer program that you're using on your laptop. It exists in the same way that your Bitcoin and wallet and your transactions exist on a blockchain that's publicly viewable and accessible and transferable. Stuff that you do in the metaverse will also exist, does also exist on that, on that blockchain. What that means is the trousers that you wear in Facebook's metaverse travel with you to, say, Amazon's metaverse. And when you put on your Amazon goggles or go into that universe, hey, there's your trousers, except they might look a bit different, for example. So that movability of resources and assets from one walled garden to another, that's, that's quite radical. Saying that, I think I, I can't see Facebook and Amazon really going for that because the whole point is if you have a walled garden, the stuff you buy, the trousers you buy in Facebook world, well, Facebook wants you to own them in Facebook world, wear them in Facebook world, trade them and sell them in Facebook world. They don't want you to move your Facebook trousers to Amazon. That's the whole point. So, so on the one hand, the metaverse is radical in that, you know, the stuff we have online in these metaverses is movable from one to the other. On the other hand, companies don't work like that. They are inherently monopolistic. So I see a sort of a, a tension there. Um, I also wonder about um, uh, how much time, as I say, we're going to spend in these metaverses, how we're going to manifest ourselves. But I do think we're getting to the point where we will want to have different identities in different places at different times and increasingly will be happy and more comfortable with an artificial intelligence aspect running bits of identities in these different worlds. And like with my banking, I do not want an AI to run my bank. I, I do not want a computer to run my bank. I don't want a bot to run my bank. I don't want, you know, chat GPT to, to be running my banking. I control that. But frankly, some conversations and chats with some people I hang out with every now and again, trying to ascertain which date we should meet up. Yeah, happy to let the chatbot get on with that. So again, in, in, in the same way, different areas of our lives, we, we give different amounts of control. I think in different metaverses, we'll be happy with different things. And that was Niall Kitson chatting with Jeff White. If you would like to learn more about shadowy figures online, do check out Jeff's podcasts online. They're called The Lazarus Heist and Cybercrime Investigations. Just search for them on your podcast player to go. This is Tech Radio. That's it for our show this week. There are more stories online that we didn't have time for in the podcast, including Dropbox, downsizing and IBM putting jobs on hold due to AI. The EU's artificial intelligence bills looks to protect companies having their intellectual property stolen and Slack meets ChatGPT. You'll find out all about that on our website at techcentral.ie. We're back again next Friday on RT Radio and Extra or get new episodes automatically by clicking follow on your podcast player. Until next time, for myself, Dusty Rhodes and Niall Kitson, thank you so much for listening. Take care. Tech Radio is produced by DustPod.io. From me, Artemis, goodbye. Goodbye.